share with you a few messages that, that highlight the aspect that Christmas is indeed coming. And we're going to take a view for the next four, four messages on p- Christmas past, on Christmas future, on Christmas present, and also the Savior's great return as he comes for his church. And I want to invite you to find your place in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 28 as we begin the message. And I want to share with you today how we recognize the Savior is needed. In that song we just sung a moment ago, it started off with the verses, Away in a manger. But I think the way it's phrased, we often miss the fact that God made a way in a manger for you and I to know him in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except by me. So I want to take us back and look at Christmas past for a moment, and I want us to examine this element of why do we need a Savior, and where does all this come from? One of the arguments that we're often faced when we proclaim the truth of God's Word is helping people understand the great correlation between what happened in the Old Testament and what happened in the New Testament, and resolving this issue that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that there is no contradiction in His truth, but there's clarity, if you will, in what God has already done to proclaim what He plans to do for His creation. We call it His story that we're going to share over the Christmas season, because Christmas is indeed coming. Now, I'm not a graphic artist. I wanted to cross out the MAS on the end of that and say Christ is coming, and we're going to see Christ revealed in several ways over the next few messages. But as you're finding your place, I want to share an image with you as we look at this, and we we all are familiar with the rags-to-riches story. You ever know anybody like that? That they, they were living in poverty and didn't have much, and all of a sudden, some way, shape, or form, something entered into their life, and maybe it was that great uncle or that new job or whatever it was, and they went from whatever situation they were in in life, and then voila, they're living in the big house, right? And we know that story, and we look for that. Matter of fact, that story is such a part of the American fabric of the American dream that we often think that if we just work hard enough and strive hard enough and have enough education and do all the right things, we too can live in this great big mansion. Well, I'm reminded that Jesus said that surely I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also, this dwelling place with God. And I want to anchor our message today to understand just the very blessings that God has given of us and what he's given to you and I at the very creation of mankind. And we're going to see what God's image of this dominion of what God had given to man and this great wealth of the God that we serve of what he has given to us. So I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 for a moment. And we're going to read verses 28 through 31, and we'll examine the text for a moment to get this understanding of the riches of God and what he has given to his creation at the beginning. So if you're there, say amen. Picking up in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
Would you join me as we pray over this message? So, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and the great riches of our Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you for all you have done to restore man unto yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, I pray now that there will be clarity in this message, clarity in your word, and a probing of our hearts, a probing of our hearts to understand just the great extent that you've gone to to show us the need for our Savior. So, Father, we thank you now. Have your way, and I pray if the, the Holy Spirit would convict those hearts that need to be convicted. Lord, you would challenge those who are comfortable. And Father, we pray for comfort for those that are challenged. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you as we recognize the riches. Notice in the beginning of this text that God has blessed them. And I want to share with you four little things, if you will, about the bestowed riches of God's provision. When we look at the word bestowed, it actually means a gift or something that has been given to someone else that wasn't earned, it wasn't merited, that there's no basis for, but there's a bestowment that someone gives to someone. And here in the text of the scripture, we see a few things about this gift that God has given to his creation. Number one, I want to share with you that there was a bestowed riches of God's provision in the fact that God bestowed communion upon his creation. Now, at the very beginning of the text in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, comma, well, we can often miss the very fact that right there in itself, God has showed us that he bestowed a very special element upon his relationship with his creation. That God was there and God physically spoke and walked and had communion with his creation before the fall, before we're going to see where God does a few other things to help us understand our need for a Savior But at the very beginning of creation, as God explained in verse 31, that it was very good, God's own words describing it for us, we see here that God had a bestowed communion with his creation. What a relationship, if you can think about that, that God had with Adam and woman in this garden of Eden when he had created them and formed them and drew the dust together, the dirt, and where we get the word Adam from is from the very earth that God used to create them. And for what purpose? To have nothing but communion with his creation. In Genesis 1.26, it's clear that God made them in his image and in his likeness. He created them male and female. There's no other creation. There's no other creature in all of creation that the Bible describes as being made in the image or in the likeness of God. What a special blessing that God bestowed upon you and I that we get to take on the very character and many of the attributes of God in the way that he made us God bestowed his communion from the very beginning. The riches of our Father, Heavenly Father, has given us a communion that we know in Christ Jesus we have this communion with God because we've been restored to him. But secondly, notice that there's bestowed blessings. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have all dominion over these things. God had given everything at the very beginning of his creation before the fall. Everything that God wanted to give to mankind was there laid out for him. Man, imagine what that was like to be in a world without sin, without the challenges that we have in our daily life, without the fall, without the earth groaning, without the toxic pollution that we deal with now, without having to worry about going to the beach. Now, my wife loves the beach, y'all. But could you imagine being able to go to the beach and not having to put sunblock on? Wouldn't that be incredible, right? No ultraviolet rays causing skin cancer and melanomas and all that kind of stuff. No wrinkles because too much sun exposure, right? Just go away. Folks, that was the world that Adam and woman lived in. Perfect creation. Bestowed blessings and told them to go and be fruitful and multiply. 
At this point, we have no, no story and no recollect of any kind of child pain or bearing pain. Mothers say amen, right? Childbirth would have been as easy as pie had the fall not occurred. Be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have command over all of those things that God created. Notice God gave man that very dominion in the very next aspect of what he bestowed. He bestowed dominion and authority to rule all of his creation. Now, we might call the lion the king of the jungle, but did you know that God created mankind to rule and subdue all of the earth, including the lion? What a wonderful dominion that God has given. This richness that God bestowed, he gave it specifically to his creation. But lastly, we notice in verses 29 through 31 that there's a bestowed abundance of all that God had given to prepare for mankind. I don't know about y'all, but Thanksgiving was just a few days ago. Still working it off, right? But man, I remember watching Shannon, and I had to cook a little bit of something in there. I didn't cook much this year, but uh, just be honest, she cooked most of it this year. But we had to prepare all that. We had to go to the grocery store. We had to buy the groceries. We had to give somebody else our currency to get something in return. And we had to do a lot of labor to have that meal. Imagine what it was like in the garden where we weren't fighting the weeds and the thorns as Adam and woman were. Did you know Adam and woman were the only two people in all of creation that have ever tasted the fruit of the garden before the fall? What a blessing that God had given to them. And afterwards, we know that there was difficulty that would come. So I want us to understand first, we've got to recognize the riches that God had intended for all of his people in order for us to truly understand the Christmas past and the reason for the need for our Savior. Now, I will share with you, there's a picture of homelessness. Now, we know what the mansion looks like, but it's often not until we have hit rock bottom somewhere, when we have tasted goodness, when we've tasted wealth, when we've tasted riches, when we've tasted the garden, if you will, it wasn't until that moment when they had experienced the Garden of Eden that they really understood what it meant in Genesis chapter 3 as we look forward to God kicking them and expelling Adam and woman out of the garden. And then specifically the curse in verses 14 through 15 that God will give upon this serpent. And what he promises will come. You ever notice that it's not until we lose something that we realize what we had? I remember counseling with with one of my young soldiers one time who was in the corporate world before joining the military, wanting to become a second lieutenant. And I remember that young soldier sharing with me his corporate job. He had made about a quarter million dollars each year. That was his salary. And in 2008, when the market had crashed and all that, he got laid off. And I remember him sharing with me that he had a company offer him uh, about $125,000 for what he used to do, which he was getting paid double for. And I remember how he was sharing with me his experience that there was no way he was going to take that job because he knew how much he was worth. And in hindsight now, he says, man, I wish I would have taken that job because it'd still be double what I'm making today. It's often when we lose an opportunity that we recognize what it was that we were lo- what we lost. And I think Adam and woman and even Satan is going to recognize exactly what they lost when they rebelled. And why God is going to send a Savior to secure the original blessings and riches that he bestowed upon them. Adam and woman lost paradise and they became homeless forever to wander on earth. That was not what God had intended for them. Look with me and turn three, two chapters to the right, if you will, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15. And let me give you a little background text of what has taken place up until this point. 
God had commanded Adam in the dominion over the earth. God had given Adam a specific responsibility to, to subdue the garden, to do all these things. And he told Adam, we have no scripture reference to him ever speaking to woman until we get to this chapter of Genesis. And God's command to Adam was to make sure that everyone knew, being woman, for you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, surely you will die. You see, Adam had been given that commandment and given that responsibility to make sure that woman knew that and she understood it. Now, I keep referring to her as woman because this point, because not until the exile, not until the outcast, is she even named Eve. She's still woman. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh as God created her to make a helpmate, not subservient to Adam, but complementarian in the nature of Adam and woman together doing the very thing that God had intended them to do. And now we get to the point where the fall has occurred. Adam and woman rebel against God. They seek their own desires. They're tempted by the serpent, the Satan who is thrown from from heaven, if you will. And now he's in the garden and he tempts woman and Adam and they do what God told them not to do. And they follow their own desires and they want to become like God. Their eyes were open and they realized the sin upon which they had partaken rebelling against God and doing what they wanted. The rest of the text in between chapters 2 and 3 tell us that Adam and woman ran and hid themselves when they heard God's voice approaching, and God calls out to them, Adam, where are you? Several times. And Adam explains, well, we ran and hid for we knew we were naked. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I told you not to? And all of a sudden, condemnation and conviction and sin had entered into the world. And God recognized what had happened as if he didn't know, being omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, being all of those things, the character and nature of God. And here's what God does to resolve this issue. And the the need for our Savior becomes manifest here in verses 14 and 15 as we see the first element of the gospel of Christ coming on the scenes. Look with me in your Bible in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, notice he curses the serpent first before he gets to woman and he gets to Adam. He goes straight to the issue and he brings forth this condemnation, this curse upon the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Look in verse 15. Here's where we see Christ and the need for a Savior coming on the scene all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. But I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We've got a fancy term in the theological world called proto-evangelium, meaning the very first aspect of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, coming on the scene in this text right here. From the very beginning of the fall, God had already put into motion everything that would be needed for a Savior to come and to be present to overcome enmity. Well, let me define enmity with you. Number one, the recognizing of the coming of the Savior in these verses help us to understand this hostility that is now in the world because of the fall. It's defined as a state of deep-seated ill will, this enmity between evil and righteousness, between the way God expected it to happen and this hostility that would endure for all of creation until the point where God reconciles all things through his son Jesus Christ to himself. 
Matter of fact, there's a few scripture verses that talk about this hostility and what God has done, not only to bring a resolve and reconciliation to mankind, but also to bring a finality to it. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says the following. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He would write to the church in Rome in Romans 16, 20, and he would explain the very thing that we see here in the Genesis 14 and 15 verses about Christ coming. And this is what Paul records to the church in Rome. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, Paul recognized what God had began his work in the Garden of Eden, in the creation of man, in the fall, in the curse. In Genesis chapter 3, we see proclaimed forward into the New Testament of what Jesus would come and would do. In Isaiah's great prophecy, Isaiah describes it as the following. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, of the coming need of a Savior, this Jesus that would come, while he's not Yeshua, the Hebrew name Jesus, is not given predominantly here, but we see an understanding of what God was preparing the way for his people to know. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see, this hostility that's overcome by Jesus Christ was on the scene in the very beginning. I hope we get an understanding of not only the great need and depravity of the fall, but I would argue in an image I want to share with you, there's a picture of the world's map if you'll bring that up for just a minute. And I want to share with you what this is, the the real state of what was taking place. What we can understand from that Genesis chapter 3 passage is a thing that we call poverty. Not the financial poverty that the map shows on on the screen. What this map is demonstrating is that around the world, the International Monetary Fund describes certain countries based on their financial apparatus and what we call the poverty scale. And you'll notice all of the different colors. Most of them are in some shade of red. I found that interesting. And that's the different levels of poverty that are around the world. One of the countries that we pray for and that we are supporting through Operation Christmas Child and our IMB missionaries there, right in the center of Africa, you see a little white dot. If you'll notice the continent and that white dot, that country is Uganda. And I found it interesting that in Uganda, 85% of the population live on less than $5.50 a day. Now put poverty in perspective now, y'all. When we go to Starbucks, okay, we spend that on a coffee cup nowadays if you go there. If you like kombucha, that wretched drink, right? It's actually pretty good for you, but... Uh, I mean, I remember buying some downtown Southern Pines supporting a local business, and I bought two drinks, and she said, $14, I like to have a heart attack. I said, Lord Jesus, come, right? Uh... The world in Uganda, their poverty level 
they live off less than $5.50 a day, 86%, 85% of the population. Now imagine the abundance of the American dream of what we have. But here's the shocker, y'all. While that's a financial picture of what's going on around the world, did you know that we were all born in spiritual poverty? We were all born in such a state that we were not bestowed the riches upon what God had given us, but yet because of sin, spiritual poverty impacts every single one of us the same. If there was an image of spiritual poverty around the world, every single continent would be bright, bright red, 100% impoverished, with no one earning a dime towards righteousness. So let me share with you, realizing the poverty of man, let's look in verses Genesis verse 16 and 19 of chapter 3. Stay right where you're at and just continue to follow along on this curse that came. And we see this spiritual poverty that comes upon and befalls upon Adam and woman as they're now cast out of God's big house, if you will, the Garden of Eden, as they're now separated in their fellowship from God, having known what it was like to live in the mansion. Y'all remember the picture. And to now be cast out of it to suffer and to deal with this issue of choices that they've made. I remember, I think I shared it with you a few times before, but I remember I flew so much they used to upgrade me to first class all the time, right? And I would just expect it. I'd buy a coach fare, but I'd get upgraded to first class because I just flew so much. And then I remember the time where something was messed up on my ticket and they didn't put my middle initial on there and Delta, the way they flew, long story short, I didn't get upgraded, y'all. I sat there sucking my thumb like a baby for like three hours, man. I'm sitting in coach the whole time just whining and sniveling because I got what I deserved. I bought a coach ticket. I'm sitting in coach. Why are you complaining? Because I had already experienced what it was like to fly business class. And when I got bumped out of business class, I realized just how awful it really was, right? I tell Shannon now I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in the back with the chickens and the goats on the milk crates, right? Uh, Because I'm used to sitting in first class where they bring you food on a real plate and a glass, not plastic that you got to throw away, right? Folks, Adam and Eve are now going to be cast out of the Garden of Eden, and they're going to be given a specific curse and realize the poverty that that now has befalled them. Look in verse 16 with me. To the woman, he said, notice she's still woman here. She's not given her name Eve as most of us know her by yet. To the woman, he said, and this is the first record of God speaking to her here. Imagine that. The first time that God speaks to you directly, he's cursing you. Man, not good, right? To the woman, he said, I surely will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You ever wonder why we have so much animosity of women against men and men against women and this fight in the home, even in marriage today? You can go right to the text and see the curse that fell. Why do we have the feminism movement and the women's rights movement and all of those things where there's so much contention about feminism in the world today? Well, we see it comes from the curse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. Look in verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now y'all don't go home and proof text this, right? That means making it mean something you want it to mean so that you can do what you want to do, right? That's not what this is saying here, all right? So don't ignore your wife and what she's telling you because 
Jesus, you know, because the preacher said that if your wife tells you something, you're not supposed to listen to it. That's not what God is saying here, all right? And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You see, the reality of it hits home here. God isn't condemning Adam because he listened to his wife. He's condemning Adam because he failed in his responsibility to do the very thing and protect his wife and protect and hold what God said dear to his heart. You see, that's where Adam really failed, was forsaking the very thing God commanded him. Notice, we'll pick back up on the verse. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's some tremendous difficulty that comes in to Adam and woman when they see their poverty now, having been provided for by the, by the Heavenly Father and the richness of what God had given them, now to be cast out of that and to really recognize what they were missing now. You know, business class is nice, coach isn't bad, but folks, being out of the presence of God is the worst of all. And Adam and woman knew what it was like to walk with God in the garden, to hear his voice and to recognize his footsteps, to eat and fill themselves from the very provisions that God has given, and now to be told all of that is taken from you because of your rebellion and your sin. Let me share with you three points. Number one, spiritual poverty strikes us all. There's no bias to gender. There's no bias to social status. There's no bias to geography. And I know I hit all of those three points real fast, but no bias to gender. God doesn't care whether you're male or female. He created you both. He doesn't care about your social status and what country you're from or where you live. doesn't matter if you're living in Uganda and they have a financial challenge or living in the United States where we have more blessings and abundance than any nation in the world. God doesn't care about our financial status. And he doesn't care about where we live. We're all born into spiritual poverty And we cannot do anything on our own. We cannot work our way out of it. We cannot pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. We cannot get over our issue. We cannot solve our own problems through education. Isn't it interesting that so many cry that education is the solution to the world's poverty issues? You ever heard that before? Crime. Education is the solution to the crime problem in the world. And we have advocates in all spectrums of life that are talking about social reforms and social justice programs and processes. If we just help our children be smarter, they won't have the issues. Folks, you know we are the most educated nation and the most educated society in the experience of our world as any other time in our nation. Every one of you have an encyclopedia in your back pocket with information at your fingertips that you can Google or ask Siri or Lexus or whatever her name is to give you the information for. We are the most educated and advanced society that the world has ever known in terms of intellectual knowledge. Some argue that today the world's amount of information that is coming to you and I is doubling every 24 months. Some say 18 months, meaning all of the information that has ever existed in all of the world 
used to double about every 10 years, then it started doubling every eight years, then it started doubling every six years. And they say today that the information is doubling between the rate of 18 months and 24 months. There's twice as much information as there's ever been in all of creation. Now imagine that. But isn't it interesting? We can't educate ourselves out of poverty. We can't educate crime away. We can't educate murder awareness We can't educate drug addiction. We all know all of those things are bad for us. But isn't it interesting that they still impact us no matter how we try to get out of it? Let me share with you an image of a gift. This is the season where where we're going to give gifts and we're going to exchange things. And some of y'all like Dirty Santa because you give something cheap and you hope to get something good in return, right? And then you steal it from someone else. We know how that game is played. But isn't it interesting that there's no upward mobility in God's economy without receiving the gift of his son, Jesus Christ? Folks, that is the gift that continues to give, that restores us back into his presence. That gives us back the ability to be in God's abode, if you will, and to dwell in right relationship with him. And it's a gift that he paid for dearly, that he offers free. You ever get something from someone that you know it cost them a lot to give to you? Cost them maybe everything they had, but yet they were willing to give it, and they spared no expense to make sure you had it. And maybe you didn't even like the gift, but you recognized just how much it meant to that person to give you that thing. I remember the story of the the young lady who got married to her husband, and in their poverty, neither one of them had much, but she had long, beautiful golden hair, and he had this beautiful pocket watch. And one day he goes out and decides to give her a gift that he couldn't really afford. So what does he do? He, he sells his pocket watch to buy this mirror and this comb set to give to his wife. But little did he know that she went out and cut her hair and sold her hair to buy a chain for his pocket watch. And when they both exchanged the gifts, they realized the great love that they both had for one another, that they were going to sacrifice the thing that was most dear to them for the benefit of someone else. You know, that John 3.16 passage that often we overlook that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Folks, that's the gift that Jesus gave for you and I. His blood on Calvary's cross, demonstrating his gift, not by cutting his hair or selling his locket or his, his watch but by giving his very life for you and me. There is no upward mobility in God's economy without receiving the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me share with you this gift and who Jesus was for a moment, the way Paul would explain this to the Philippian church. In Philippians chapter 2, if you want to find your place there, and I've got the words on the screen, in verses 5 through 11, we get this understanding of just the expense and the, the, the level that God went to that ties us back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, about Jesus coming and this proto-evangelium, this first good news of the gospel that would crush Satan's head. We see here in Paul's writing to the Philippian church, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, he says the following. He says, Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now for a moment, let me share with you this. Did you know that most of the Bible, most of the New Testament was not written 
to the unconverted, the unsaved, the heathen, the lost, those still in their sins and trespasses. It wasn't written to those who have never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The majority of the writing was all written to the New Testament church. It was written to men and women who had already placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a few exceptions to that along the way, but for the most part, the books that we have in the New Testament were instructions for the body of Christ to be able to understand Jesus more fully, his deity, his humanity, his Christ, who he was, and the reason we need the Savior and to remind us daily of just what Jesus did for you and me. And here's how he describes it to his letter to the Philippian church, the body of Christ there in Philippi, in verses 5 through 11. Have this mind amongst yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's already acknowledging a transformation that occurred in their mind, an understanding and an awareness of knowledge that they're able to now have because the Holy Spirit dwells within them. He talks about the possession that they have. Notice he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's a possession that takes hold of you and I when we come to Christ that we just can't shake anymore. Isn't it wonderful that when God says, you're mine, he says it's forever. I want all of you forever. There's nothing that I can do to separate me from the love of God, which is through Christ Jesus. You can go to Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, and you can see that clear picture that no depth, no height, no principalities, none of those things can separate me from Christ. And Paul is saying here to the Philippian church, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look in verse 6 with me. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Man, what a contrasting view from what you and I see going on in the world today. The lack of humility in our leaders, the lack of humility in our politicians, the lack of humility in statesmanship in our news media, when having just a, a cordial discourse of disagreement about different views that we have. But Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, King Jesus, God who was in heaven, God in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 that says, Let us make man in our image, the plurality of the Godhead being there at the present of creation. This Jesus was there in the Father's house and all the riches and glory of living in the big mansion in the sky, if you will. Notice Philippians, what Paul tells the church here. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, in verse 8, and being found in human form. John would write all about this in the Gospel of John. Probably the clearest picture of Jesus' deity and his full humanity on display. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The description here of this gift and this extent of what God went through is just fantastic. Look at verse 9, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him, no longer the bestowment upon his creation, but bestowing upon Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's no place that will escape, is what the writer is making clear to you and I. 
There is no place that the name of Jesus will not be exalted for who he is. Verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, the one prophetic book that talks about the end times and the eschatology, the the coming again of the Son of Man, the the God incarnate, the Jesus in the flesh, the, the Lion of Judah, that will come and restore all things, we know that when it says that all will confess Jesus and every tongue in verse 11 that confesses Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, they won't all be confessing because they put their trust and faith in Jesus. Some will be forced confessions because they'll recognize who Jesus was. And much like the rich man and Lazarus, the story and the understanding that Jesus gives us of what happened there, where the rich man begs Father Abraham to go and, and just, just dip your finger in some water. Just, just touch my tongue a little bit. Quench this fire and this agony. You see, the rich man recognized now in his eternal torment what blessing that sick, lame beggar Lazarus really had, and that a great chasm had been fixed that he could not pass over. You see, it will be that way for those who have never confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior here on this last, on this earth when they draw their last breath. So let me give you four qualities of the Savior's gift for a moment. How do we examine a gift? Now, we all do it, right? When you get it, what's the first thing we do? We shake it, we try to figure out what it is, hoping we didn't break it, right? And then we unwrap it, and then we look and we examine the packaging, and we examine the quality of the gift, and all that. How many of y'all ever received something that was packaged nicer than the gift itself? I'm like, man, this was nice, I'm going to keep the box, thank you for the gift. I'll put that on my shelf, we'll give that away next year to somebody else, right? Y'all have a shelf like that. Let me give you four qualities of God's gifts. Number one, Jesus left God's riches to be emptied of all that he had. You see, Jesus willingly experienced the poverty of what it meant to be amongst fallen people in a fallen world, in a fallen nature, but yet being fully God himself. He left heaven's throne to come and rub shoulders with you and me. As he told the Pharisees who would condemn him often, he said, I did not come for the, help, for the well. I came to seek and save that which is lost. I came for the sick. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God that was willing to experience and empty himself so that we could understand how to receive this gift of a Savior, to fully put it in comprehension exactly what Jesus did in this season of Advent when we celebrate Christ's Mass, the celebration of the coming of Jesus. But secondly, Jesus left royalty to become a servant to all. Now, there's all kinds of tabloids and information about the royal family and this and that's and who's doing what. But you know what I've never saw, rarely ever? I can't think of a single instance where the royal family is sweeping the streets of London. Think about that for a moment. You ever seen royalty lower themselves to the point of serving everyone else in their day-to-day routines? Now, maybe one thing to do it during Thanksgiving to stand at the soup kitchen and be in the serving line and get that great photo op where you're putting food on a homeless person's plate. And that's all wonderful and good things to do. But you know, Jesus did that every day of his human life. For three years, it's recorded of Jesus' public ministry. 
He continued to heal the lame, the sick, the blind, the deaf, the dumb, the mute, the broken. They flocked to Jesus. And what did he do? He even touched the leper. Just infuriated people, especially the religious folks. The religious folks just got infuriated with Jesus. Because to touch a leper means unclean. Matter of fact, that's what the lepers would have to holler out as they would go around. And when they came near anybody, they'd holler out, unclean! To warn everyone that they were to stay away so they too wouldn't spread leprosy. Jesus touched the leper and healed him. Folks, that's a humble servant who left heaven's throne. Royalty to come to be with you and me. But notice thirdly that those texts of scripture that we just read, Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross. The scripture says, cursed is he who is hung on a cross. Jesus bore that cruel Roman form of punishment, capital punishment, for a crime that he was completely innocent of. Completely innocent. It's one thing to die when you know you're guilty. It's another to die when you know you're completely innocent. But yet he opened not his mouth to plead his case. That's the God of creation. That's the Jesus that we put our trust and faith in. That's the Jesus that died on Calvary's cross to bear our sin, as the scripture reminds us that he became sin who knew no sin so that we may be his righteousness. Lastly, Jesus humbled himself, but Jesus is now exalted as Lord of all, all things. As he was from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, as he will be in the very end, the Alpha and Omega, come Lord Jesus, come. You see, Jesus is the Lord of all, whether we want to admit that or not. The reality of what Scripture tells us from cover to cover is prophesying about this advent, this coming of a Savior, and explaining to us the need for a Savior. Paul would write to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and he would talk about this gift. And he says, By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, the faith that we have, sola fide, this, this doctrine of the five core solas of our faith, as we hold to what Scripture teaches, this sola fide, by faith alone, that we come to Jesus Christ, really is countercultural for, for most of us. Because we live in a society that teaches and proclaims and values hard work, education, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, You can fix your problem if you just try hard enough. And the reality is, God's tried to show us from the Old Testament all the way through all of the laws, all of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, all of those things were a foreshadowing of God trying to get His people's attention to say, you can't do it without me. Just like I provided for you in the Garden of Eden, away from me, you will have nothing but thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of your brow will you try to exist. But with me, you will inherit the riches of heaven. Folks, what a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. In Romans 10, verses 9 through 13, he would say this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There is a need for public profession of faith in Christ Jesus. 
For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me share with you in closing an illustration of this man that owned that mansion. While he was a younger man, him and his wife had a child, and his son was born, and and in that mansion during the life, that son dies at an early age. And his family grieved over it. You can imagine the entire home grieved over it. And one particular servant who had a great fondness for the, the master's house and, and the master's son um, was there. And he was tremendously grieved as well over the, the death of his son. It was their only child. And, and all of a sudden, as the man ages out and he ends up dying, and there's this big estate sale. We know that, right? Go back to that picture of the mansion for a minute. Now, you can imagine if you get a newspaper article that says estate sale right here, pennies on the dollar, how many of y'all going to show up, right? We're all looking for a good deal at Christmas time, right? So the man has this auction and all the signs are going on. And then, then right the very first thing is all the crowd is gathered and all the people are there. And you can imagine the ruckus. Everybody's got their checkbooks out and they got their little bidding flaps ready to go. And it's fixing to be on in this room because there's some good stuff in this place. And the very first thing they bring up to the auction is this portrait. And what is it? It's a portrait of the, of the master's son. And the servant is there as well, just watching kind of in disbelief as what's going on and how the people are jockeying for all the riches of this man, really didn't care about him at all. And then all of a sudden, the auctioneer begins and slaps his gavel and says, the auction will begin with the selling of the master's son portrait. Nobody wants any of that. Matter of fact, they start getting a little unruly. Who opened the bid with $100? $100 anyone? Nobody even bids. Nobody wants the father's son. And all of a sudden, the servant in the back room, with his great love for the, the servant, for the master and his son, he says, I'll, I'll take it. I'll bid it. He bids his $100. And at second, third, fourth, they close the auction, and he gets the portrait. And then the next thing that happens is the auctioneer slams his gavel down, and he says, the auction is now closed. And everybody's in disbelief. What do you mean the auction's closed? We've only bid on one thing. And the auctioneer said, well, the man's will was very specific. He said, whoever gets the son gets it all. What an image for you and I. That when we get Jesus, when we get the son, we get everything that God has for you and I. There's nothing greater, but there are so many like that crowd wouldn't even bid on it because they thought it was junk. When you get the sun, you get it all. Folks, that's a testimony of our need for the Savior. Every head bowed and every eye closed. The cross of Calvary is how we get the sun, recognizing that Jesus gave all on that cross. For you and I. There's no record of him having to be bound because he was fighting the crucifixion. No record of the fight that took place amongst his disciples and the Roman centurion soldiers to keep him from being nailed to a cross. No. Scripture records to us that he willingly laid out his hands and he gave up his life for you and I so that whoever may get the Son could get it all. Is that you today? Do you know? that you've got the Son. And if you do, 
know that you've got everything you need in life. But know that if you're sitting here today, if you're listening at home, and you know you don't have the Son, but you want it. God says, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Paul would say in Romans 10, 13, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Let me put it to you another way. Jesus said, just raise your bidding paddle and let me know you want it, and I'll come to you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens that door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for recognizing all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 our need for a Savior. We thank you for the promise of the curse and the, the hope that not only Adam and woman and Eve had all of their life, but also the forefathers of Israel. And, Father, we thank you for that hope being revealed to us in the New Testament, the hope of your Son. And, Father, it's my prayer today that everyone in the sound of this voice has received your Son. And in doing so, we've received all the richness of your heavenly kingdom. So, Father, thank you for your love and your mercy, and we pray now for this time. I pray if there's one here that does not know you, may today be the day that they enter into a relationship through your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.